You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 129, and I'm the Warrior Priest, Donald Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody, including myself. I was at a conference that I spoke at in San Diego, and then traveled to Mexico to stay with my spiritual family there for a week to reinvigorate, to regenerate, to get my bearings about me again. It was a fantastic trip. It was needed, much needed. I feel refreshed mentally. I think I'm still on vacation a little bit, so we'll see how this one goes today. But thank you everyone for your patience, Uh, for me not posting for the last two weeks and getting out of the country so that I could have a time of reflection and conversation with two people that I respect more than just about anyone else in the world, my mom and dad, my spiritual mother and father. And during that time then, and in the conversations that we shared with each other, something that came out of it almost immediately was that for myself, and maybe this has happened to you also, the last three years, I have been so focused on not only remaining strong, but increasing my strength, increasing discipline, keeping everything high and tight, all my ducks in a row, prioritizing and executing, making sure that everything stays simple. But I was so focused on protecting myself and my family and the ones I love that the armor that I had fashioned for myself had become so thick, so dense that I stopped loving anyone except my immediate family. And as a result of not being able to love others because I was so concerned with protecting and preserving what I had and being strong for others, being a leader, I didn't recognize what was happening, which was that I had stopped loving others. I was not capable of true compassion and kindness. I could feign compassion and kindness within my vocation. I could speak of it. I could demonstrate it even. Within the bounds of my vocation, though, it wasn't spontaneous. It wasn't because I wanted to show compassion and kindness. It's because I had to, because it's my job. And people needed me to show them, to exhibit compassion and kindness toward them. But in my heart, it wasn't there. And as a consequence, I grew to hate some people, loathe other people, resent some people. Which is just to say I was no longer capable of compassion and kindness. And I thought that that was simply a consequence of me becoming stronger and tougher and building up my defenses, higher and thicker, making them more impenetrable and therefore strengthening myself, my family, and those whom I love. But what was revealed to me in these conversations with my parents then was that I was actually weaker for it. And I think that was a profound statement that I thought I was getting stronger, but I was actually making myself weaker because I was cutting myself off from others. And I looked down at others. 
I did not see others as my equals or my superiors. I became petty, quick to judge, slow to forgive, quick to hate, slow to show compassion and kindness, quick to dismiss people and slow to listen and understand. So that I was just going through the motions. I was just doing what was on the schedule, doing what I needed to do to keep moving forward. And I lost myself in that. It destroyed my creativity for sure, because what was pleasantly surprising about my trip to Mexico is I started writing poetry again. And the first three or four days, it just streamed out of me. I couldn't stop myself. And so I create these, these hybrids of poems slash spoken words slash rap that is just the way in which it comes out of me and how I express myself. And I'm not claiming they're good by any means. It's just that I used to do that all the time. I've written poetry since I was in elementary school. Poetry, stories, songs. And at some point that all dried up because I cut myself off from love and being loved. I wanted to be loved. I wanted to receive love, but I didn't want to give it because I couldn't. I had become so hard, my armor so thick that I didn't realize the man inside the armor was being weakened because I wasn't exposing myself to difficulty, to struggle. I was, but in a, it's an interesting thing as a side note that in jujitsu we say, you know, that jujitsu will make you comfortable being uncomfortable. Well, the thing about that is though, you can become so comfortable being uncomfortable that even discomfort, it becomes your comfort zone. And so constantly training, constantly teaching, constantly fighting, constantly improving myself became my comfort zone. It became my defense against showing other people love, charity, being selfless, sacrificing my time, my energy, my attention to other people because they needed me to. And that weakened me because I cut myself off from other people, from opportunities. And I see it most pointedly in the fact that until I started writing poetry again, started writing songs again, I didn't even think about it. And now that it's pouring out of me, I've made it my daily discipline, my daily habit that when I wake up in the morning and I get my cup of coffee, I just open myself up and say to the Lord, okay, what are we going to meditate on this morning? What am I, what's going to come out of me? What am I going to write about this morning? And so just the, the discipline of waking up in the morning and saying, I'm going to write instead of playing video games. I'm going to open myself up to creativity instead of going on social media. And I'm going to let whatever comes out, comes out. And I'm going to accept the end product, good, bad, or otherwise. Because again, as I've talked about, I'm my own worst critic. And I too often allow self-doubt to cannibalize the very best parts of me. So this is a great exercise in humility for me as well because I then put it out there on Instagram and Facebook. Not to get the likes, but of course that is always the bonus to get that dopamine hit, to get that little virtual amen, that thumbs up, but to say to myself, good, bad, or otherwise, I'm going to share my meditations, I'm going to share my creativity, and I'm going to put it out there, and people can judge it for themselves. That's the thing about art is that if you're going to create art and you're going to expose your art 
two people outside of a circle of people who always see the best and will always congratulate you and always motivate you and push you to keep going, there's going to be people who say, that's terrible. That's, that's not good. I don't like that. But I think that's important too. It's that discomfort again, to put yourself out there in such a way that like with poetry or songwriting or or writing a story or playing a piece of music and then putting it on the internet, you're basically saying to other people, judge me. But I think it's a useful habit. It's a useful discipline to put yourself out there, to expose yourself to people and contradictory opinions. Because of course, as we all know, the internet is populated by trolls (laughs) who love to jump out from under their bridges and gobble up the goats. But that's okay. I think you need to be exposed to that because that's a part of having your heart broken and having your heart broken and wrestling with that is an emotional process. And to do that with your emotions, especially in the way that the Stoics talk about self-control in relation to your emotions. Well, if I shut myself off from my emotions, if I stop loving, if I stop showing compassion and charity, if I stop acting selflessly toward other people, how can I then develop that self-control over my emotions when I'm basically saying to people, you're not allowed in. You're not allowed to have access to my emotions, any of them, because I don't like you. I don't want you to see the real me. I don't want to be exposed to that kind of judgment. So I'm just going to build up this armor, add extra plates, reinforce it, while the man inside atrophies and withers. His creativity atrophies and withers. So that in the end, when I look in the mirror, I see a strong man. But then when someone who sees the truth in me, like my spiritual mother, she says, that's weak. And because she's never really told me anything that wasn't true, which is why I love her so much, I listened and I stepped back and I reflected on that and realized I had done that and I couldn't see it. She saw it and others saw it, but I didn't. And so I've been meditating on that a lot the last week and a half. And to that end, I thought, you know what? There's somebody I haven't talked about on the show. I think at all, actually, not even referred to him. And he's someone that I discovered four or five years ago. And I'll read him from time to time. He helps me, again, with the creative side of philosophy, kind of leads me into places that are a fun place to play intellectually and then to look at life and see how that plays into life. And that's Alan Watts. I don't necessarily agree with a lot of Alan Watts's personal decisions in his life, but I think philosophically and in his lectures, which a lot of them are available on YouTube, his books are all available on Amazon. He's an interesting character and I miss that. Our generation, as I've lamented before, seems to lack characters, men and women who have been through experiences that formed and shaped them in such a way that they had character. Because in my experience anyways, maybe it's different for you, but in my experience, the characters I meet, the storytellers I meet, the people that I like to hang around with because they're just good, fun people to hang around with and you know you're going to leave your interactions with them with some good stories, they've been through some really tough stuff, some hard times that formed them into the person that they, they are, the person sitting in front of you. That's their character. But that means then that these characters are also kind of like dogs off the leash. 
They've been through it. They've lived life. There's a lot of miles on their tires. So they're not given to marching in step with the herd. They're not always the most obedient and servile personalities. They're characters. They're the outliers. They're the ones who exist at the fringes of the faculty. They're the ones that you see sitting alone in the coffee shop. And yet, like I said, because they've been through so much, they have so much wisdom to communicate. And they usually tell it through these anecdotes and these stories, which you walk away from them, like I said, and you wonder to yourself, how did they survive? How did they live through that? And why haven't I lived more? I miss characters. I miss that older generation of characters because everything nowadays is so homogenized. Everything's so dogmatic. It's either yes or no. There's no freedom because we're not allowed to suffer. We're not allowed to experience discomfort. We have to cancel it. We have to destroy those who cause us discomfort. We have to ban them. And I think that's tragic because we need those people of character in the arts in particular, writers, comedians, musicians, poets. When was the last time, for example, I thought about this this summer, when was the last time you saw a poet on TV? When was the last time you ever heard someone express their desire to read poetry out loud with you or to study poetry or they sit at home and read it out loud to themselves? When was the last time anybody who listens to rap music, for example, look at it as spoken word poetry, going back to the Harlem jazz poets like Langston Hughes? Because in order to read poetry out loud, you have to open yourself. You have to be available to it. You have to say the words out loud and you have to chew on them. And you have to be in love with language and with music and your body as an instrument. When you write... You have to open yourselves up to creativity and imagination and allowing your mind to go wherever it wants to go, to let it wander. But in order to let it wander, you have to be in silence. You have to turn off the phone. You have to close your iPad. You have to shut off the TV. You have to go away. Go somewhere that's alone, where you're just there in the silence with yourself with your thoughts, with your emotions. And you open yourself up and allow your thoughts and emotions to go wherever. And maybe you end up weeping. Maybe you end up screaming. Maybe you end up laughing. Maybe you just sit there and stare at a blank page or a blank screen and you have nothing to write because you just have yourself, your thoughts, and your emotions. And that's okay too. But with Watts, philosophically then, he kind of leads me there in a creative sense, like I said. So I wanted to just go through Watts today, and I don't know where he's going to take us, but let's just have some fun. Let's just relax and just enjoy and love the fact that you and I get to sit here, and I get to talk into the space in front of me, and it comes out of your speakers, and you hear it, and we can just let our minds go wherever Watts wants to take us. So to begin then, he wrote this book called The Wisdom of Insecurity, which is subtitled A Message for an Age of Anxiety. Yeah, that's it. And he writes that there is then the feeling that we live in the time of unusual insecurity. In the past hundred years, so many long-established traditions have broken down, traditions of family and social life, of government, of the economic order, and of religious belief. As the years go by, there seems 
to be fewer and fewer rocks to which we can hold, fewer things which we can regard as absolutely right and true and fixed for all time. To some, this is a welcome release from the restraints of moral, social, and spiritual dogma. To others, it is a dangerous and terrifying breach with reason and sanity, tending to plunge human life into hopeless chaos. To most, perhaps, the immediate sense of release has given a brief exhilaration to be followed by the deepest anxiety. For if all is relative, if life is a torrent without form or goal, in whose flood absolutely nothing save change itself can last, it seems to be something in which there is no future, and thus no hope. So in the present tense, for example, many celebrate the destruction of religion and cultural myths, that these are childish, juvenile teachings, beliefs, and that if we can just get rid of religion, if we can just get rid of our cultural mythology, our mythos, then we would finally be free, free from the past, free from our fathers, free from the system. And then finally we can confront the reality they were all hiding from behind religion and their cultural myths. No blinders, no chains, just reality. But what Watts is after, what he's stating here, is that myths, for example, serve a vital role, not an important role, a vital role, a literally life-giving role in maintaining our psychological and our emotional health and well-being. Take away religion, take away our cultural mythology, and what you're left with is nothing. So yes, we're free in the sense that we've been freed from the restraints, the boundaries of religion and myth, but free to do what? Free for what? Free from what? What are we free to think now, or to say, or to do? And if there are no boundaries, if there is no mythos, there are no beliefs, if there's no doctrine, there's no boundaries, no fence line, how do we maintain our psychological and emotional health and well-being? So then Watts writes, For a man seems to be unable to live without myth, without the belief that the routine and the drudgery, the pain and fear of this life, have some meaning and goal in the future. One of the things that Carl Jung talks about, Nietzsche talks about this, others talked about it at length, is that when we're freed from all restraints, or at least we believe we are, foolishly, childishly, we believe we are, which is the great irony, of course, is that these childish beliefs that we are accused of holding are actually quite mature. And they've been time-tested and field-tested and workshopped for thousands and thousands of years. These are very mature doctrines that we believe and trust in. These are long-standing cultural myths that we accept they are the ones who are childish for thinking, believing actually, dogmatically believing that we can simply throw off the shackles of religion and myth and confront reality free, free to think, free to speak, free to act, when in reality, that's a childish belief. For example, when I was 
10, nine or 10. I got fed up with my parents. So I went upstairs, pulled out my little suitcase, packed my most valuable possessions, my teddy bear strawberry, my pillow, and a sandwich I had made. I walked downstairs. I told my mom I'm leaving and I'm never coming home. She said, okay, I love you. Goodbye. And I walked out the front door, walked out onto the street, turned right, and just started walking. And I made it about four blocks, five blocks. I made it to the end of the road, basically. <laughs> and then there was a cornfield and the highway. And I turned around. I looked back towards my house, looked out at the highway and the cornfield, looked down the street, walked back home, sat down on the front steps and ate my sandwich. Then I went inside, went upstairs without saying a word to anybody and played my room for the rest of the day. It is the belief of a child that he or she can leave home and run away whenever they want to be free from all of those terrible parental rules and disciplines. And yet when we finally break free and we leave our home, what do we experience? Dread, anxiety, hopelessness. In fact, in that moment as a child, my only hope was that the front door would be unlocked when I got back home. That's what it's like when you decide, when you believe that you can simply strip yourself of these blinders imposed upon you by the culture and religion. It's childish. It's juvenile. It's thoughtless. And it leaves you psychologically and emotionally unhealthy and unwell. Because you have no mooring, no footing. What's right? What's wrong? What's good? What's bad? What's true? What's false? It's all reduced to power. Power games, transactions. What's true is true because I'm more powerful than you are and so my truth is truer than yours. My beliefs are more orthodox than yours because I'm more powerful than you. I'm stronger than you and I'm going to force you to believe these things and you have to or I'll crush you. When we engage with power, and we play these power games. And the threat of violence is always hovering in the background. Those are the moments we beg for religion and myth to come back into our lives to establish a firm foundation for us. A foundation that's bigger than we are. That's older than we are. That's been tested far more than we will ever be tested in our whole life. We yearn for those myths to give us some sense of place and time in the universe, in our community, in our family tree. That's why everybody is so psychologically and emotionally unhealthy and unwell now. Because they've bought into this myth, and that's what it is, that we can cast off all myths. When what Watts is arguing in the wisdom of insecurity is that we are unable to live without myths. So even if we throw off one myth, we will create a new myth. Because otherwise, our life is routine and drudgery. That's what I experienced the last three years without realizing it, is that the more routine my life became, the more drudgery I experienced. Because it literally was 
Oh, now I got to go to the gym because that's what I do every Tuesday night. And I got to think of what I'm going to teach, but I don't want to teach because I don't care. I stopped seeing things as gifts. I stopped being compassionate. I stopped caring. I stopped seeing others as people who need love. They need charity. They need me to be selfless and to sacrifice to a certain extent for them to show them love because they weren't experiencing it in their own life. Now, that being said, one caveat, at least from my perspective, is this. We are not able to love others as we want to love them, but only to the degree to which they are ready to receive our love. We can't force our love on people. We can't say, I need to love you this way when they're not ready to receive it that way. So all we can do is offer our love or withdraw it. But we can't, we can't put our love on the table and then be upset and judgmental when the other person that we intended it for won't pick it up. That's not love. Love with conditions is not love. Remember we talked about this in the Tolkien episode about how in the Lord of the Rings, he really pitted the old worlds, the old pagan understanding of gift against the new Christian ethos and the Christian understanding of gift and how Gandalf and the Fellowship of the Ring represented the Christian ethos of true gift, selfless, self-sacrificial, and Sauron and the Ring of Power were the old pagan understanding of gift because it always came with conditions and therefore isn't actually a gift. This is very important, I think. It's very important to me. I hope you've thought about this. That for love to be true, it can't come with conditions. And I say that having been married 24 years and been through the highest heights of my life with this woman and the lowest lows of my life with this woman. We have been through joy and tragedy, blessing and curse. We've fallen out of love with each other and fallen back into love with each other. And we've had to travel that together. We've had to walk hand in hand together through all these things so that I can honestly say I love her more today than at any time in the past. And God willing, my prayers will be answered and I'll love her more tomorrow than I do today. And even that being said, we still put conditions on each other all the time. Because that's human nature, to put conditions on each other, to put up fences. But what we strive for in our relationship then is that within those boundaries, one, that those boundaries are built from respect and honor and mutual admiration and appreciation and love, compassion, charity, kindness, forgiveness. But then within those boundaries then that we agreed need to stay up, we're free. We're free to play. We're free to dance. We're free to be creative. We're free to bake. We're free to be a family. We're free to come and go. But if those, those fence lines are not built by both of you, if you both don't agree on them, then one of you is always going to be circling back around to try and tear it down. And so the two of you in your relationship are always repairing the same fence. Because one or the other or both of you are building it up and then tearing it down, building it up and tearing it down and wondering, why do we keep ending up in the same place in our relationship? Because you're not on the same page. You're not understanding each other. You're not communicating. Your fences, your walls aren't built with mutual respect, admiration, and honor for each other. 
They're built in selfishness, self-seeking, self-centeredness. And so you need something that you believe in together. You need a mythos. You need an ethos, a code of conduct, a discipline. Because without that, life is routine and drudge, just drudge. And then within that, instead of freedom, instead of kindness and forgiveness, and even the freedom to argue with each other when you disagree, instead there's just pain and fear that life has no meaning and there is no point, there's no goal in the future waiting for you. Every day is exactly the same until you drop dead. Again, that's what creates nihilism. That's what I spoke about at the conference. How to talk about belief in, an, in a society of nihilists who believe in nothing, who don't believe that their life has any meaning. They have no values, no higher calling. They're just going from one day to the next. Rinse, repeat every day. That's why so many people are on pharmaceutical medications. That's why so many people are morbidly obese. That's why we burn down our cities. That's why we allow politicians and leaders to manipulate and gaslight us, to exterminate us at their leisure. That's why we worship celebrities and professional athletes. Because we don't have rights for our boys and girls to pass through so that they can mark their transition from child to adult. We don't have those ceremonies. We don't have those rights. So we don't have men and women we have boys and girls in adult bodies who are lost in a wash in a society that gives them too many choices and tells them that casual sex is empowering, that you're entitled to everything and anything that you want because there is no meaning to this. It's all an accident. And there is no value. There's just the yes or no of your own personal tastes. And there is no higher meaning because there is no God. There is no virtue. There are no morals. There's no objective reality. It's just whatever your truth is, that's, that's true then. As long as you're not hurting anybody else, which also is a myth. But myth and belief, they're the antidote to the situation today. Because what they do is they provide a framework. They provide definitions for us. They provide a suit of armor for us against insignificance and they help us make sense of suffering, for example, which seems senseless and evil, which seems even more senseless. It provides with a set of principles, ideals to help us rise above the difficulties of life and to continue moving forward into the future in hope. When we live without myth, life itself is a burden. Relationships are a burden. Work, play, Everything is a burden which we have to then force ourselves to participate in because there's bills to pay and there's free time to fill. When you destroy these traditional myths, which we see in Hollywood, for example, right now, destroy these franchises, destroy the myths, destroy Tolkien, destroy over a hundred years of Marvel and DC stories, destroy these traditional myths that these comic book artists and writers grew up reading and these great authors like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and J.K. Rowling and others grew up reading. These myths and traditions that form the spine and the skeleton for their entire worldview, when you destroy that, what are you replacing it with? Because it looks to me like it's a whole lot of I don't want to say nothing. I think that's too dismissive and condescending, but I would say this. 
what I see happening today is that these traditional myths that, again, like I say, field-tested, workshopped, time-tested for thousands and thousands of years, now these arrogant young screenwriters and directors and actors and actresses, authors, musicians, they think they can just create an entire new mythos out of their imagination based on gender politics and critical social theory and neo-Marxism. They can't think for themselves. They're not capable. And so they're mediocre at best. I was listening to The Critical Drinker, who I highly recommend if you want to get a take on pop culture today. I love The Critical Drinker. He was talking about the Black Adam movie, that we've gotten to a point in society and we've gotten to a point in pop culture where an okay movie that's not good nor bad, but just okay, is what passes for a good movie nowadays. There's nothing significant about it. You'll forget about it in a week or two. There's nothing mind-boggling, earth-shaking, genre-changing about the movie. It's just okay. It's just okay. But nowadays, that passes for great cinema. We've grown so lazy and pacifistic. We've become so pussified because we stripped away everything that actually defines our life and, and provides meaning and definition so that we don't sink into this swamp of insignificance and meaninglessness, that everything's an accident and that we don't really matter. But that's not true. In fact, Watts didn't think it was possible for us to destroy myths that are traditional or destroy beliefs that are traditional. And by traditional, he and I just mean pre-modern, things that have been around for thousands of years. What happens though, then, is you can't get rid of it. All you can do is rebel against it. Because myth and religion, belief, what they are is an expression of objective truth. And you can't destroy reality. That's what objective truth is. It's reality. You can't destroy natural law simply because you don't want to acknowledge that you know in your heart the difference between right and wrong and good and evil. All you can do is react against it, rebel against it, which of course creates more pain, more anxiety, more violence. Because you're trying to force people, you're demanding that people change and abandon these myths and these beliefs and adopt yours. And then when they ask why, you have no explanation or defense other than because they're not those traditional myths and beliefs. The traditional ones are bad. Why are they bad? Because they're oppressive and they, they imprison us and they enslave us in this system of, of whiteness and masculineness and all of these terrible words that we use to judge everything that is, well, older than 10 years ago, older than this generation. That's not a justifiable position. It's not a position you can hold for 50 years or 5,000 years. And so all of these people that are trying to deconstruct and destroy these myths and beliefs in the present tense, they're doomed because others have done it. I'm a historian by training. I know this. Others have tried to dismantle beliefs. You don't think that 2,000 years of persecution of the Christian church hasn't resulted in something else other than the Christian church still being around? There's still the Christian faith within the broader church. And maybe the broader Christian church as a religious institution isn't quote-unquote Christian and doesn't confess the Christian faith as contained in the Bible. But within that institution, within that religion, 
there are people who are still of the Christian faith who still confess God's word. They confess their faith and belief in Jesus as the Messiah. People have tried to snuff that out for over 2,000 years. It hasn't worked. It hasn't succeeded. People have attempted for thousands of years to upset and destroy myth and the mythos of different peoples. And yet we can still read the Havamal. We can still read the Hagakure. We can still read epic poems like Gilgamesh. Why? Because they are an expression and a definition of objective truth. And people have crashed against them for thousands of years and they died. But the myths and the beliefs, they're still here. So when somebody on TV who gets up on their soapbox or their high horse and says, it's not much longer now, you're not going to see religion anymore because we don't need it. We have science. It's like, that's why you say believe the science because science is your religion because you can't believe in the science because science in and of itself is based on theories, hypotheses, testing those out, being able to repeat the, 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 the formula multiple times, come out with more than, you know, come out with the same result more than just once. That's why I was reading an article and again, I can't, I'm going from memory, so please don't condemn me for this, but I think it's something like 73% of all experiments aren't repeatable. Like most experiments that are done in a clinical environment are not repeatable. That's what science is. <laughs> but to say then you have to believe the science or like um, little Joseph Mengele, Anthony Fauci likes to say, I am the science. Well, you're just saying I am the Messiah. That's all you're saying. Because when you say believe the science, you're basically saying science is God. Worship the science means science is God. So when you say, I am the science, like Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, all those I am statements to a, an Israelite, they point back to God at Sinai saying to Moses, I am. So when, when little Joseph Mengele says, I am the science, he's saying, I'm God. The science is God and I am the science. I am the physical manifestation of science and therefore I am God. I am your savior. When, of course, he is a death god, he is a death cultist. He might be the high priest of the death cult, but he is not God. Well, how do I know this? Because he will die. And if he doesn't come back from the dead in three days, he's not God. He's just a sad, pathetic, scared little man. So Watts continues then, once there is the suspicion that a religion is a myth, its power is gone. It may be necessary for a man to have a myth, but he cannot self-consciously prescribe one as he can mix a pill for a headache, which is what I was just talking about. A myth can only work when it is thought to be the truth. I would say beyond thought, it's accepted, it's received as the truth. And man, wants rights, cannot for long knowingly and intentionally, quote-unquote, kid himself. If it's true, you can lie to yourself all you want, but it's still true. It doesn't change the fact that it's true, objectively. You can lie to yourself. You can kid yourself about it, but it doesn't change the fact that it's true. Likewise, you can lie to yourself and kid yourself about an untruth. It doesn't change the fact that it's still an untruth. And eventually, it's going to have to be accepted one way or the other. You'll either end up rebelling against it or just doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on the lie and how you justify believing in it. And so, what has happened? Well, to go back to entertainment, 
pop culture. With the rise of depression and anxiety, with the rise and increase in psychological afflictions that people suffer from and the increase in mental illness, the rise in suicide, abortions, euthanasia, with the tens of millions of people who have died as a consequence of getting a second, third, or fourth booster shot. The number right now officially is 40 million people have died as a consequence of receiving the COVID vaccine, which again is no vaccine. It's an mRNA serum. It alters your DNA. That's a whole nother conversation. But what happens, of course, is when you reject myth, when you reject belief, you can't make sense of the universe anymore. In fact, it becomes terrifying because everything is unknown. Everything is a mystery. Everything is unstable and uncertain, and it could change at any moment. So what's your place in all that? As Hamlet says, what is this quintessence of dust? Well, we flee. We run away. How do we run away from these thoughts and our feelings? Distraction. We distract ourselves. We amuse ourselves to death, to quote Neil Postman. How? Well, Watts writes, his eyes flit without rest from television screen to newspaper to magazine, whereas we could translate that from television to iPad to smartphone, keeping him in a sort of orgasm without release, life, through a series of teasing glimpses of shiny automobiles, shiny female bodies, and other sensuous surfaces, interspersed with such restorers of sensitivity, shock treatments, as human interest shots of criminals, mangled bodies, wrecked airplanes, prize fights, and burning buildings. On the plane to San Diego, I had the pleasure of being seated next to a young woman. Shout out to you if you're listening to this. I gave you, I gave her the podcast. I showed her the podcast and said, you know, if you if you need help with your fear of flying, with anxiety about your life and where your life is going, check out my podcast. I talk about this stuff. I shared it with her. So if you're listening to this, thanks for sharing a flight with me. Thanks for being so open and honest with me and transparent about your life. It was a fun conversation, and I'm glad I got to hold your hand as we landed in San Diego. But she had a fear of flying, and we talked about that. I talked about the Stoics. I talked about my faith. But I also made the comment, because I was watching a movie that was rather intense and violent, that violence relaxes me, right? Which to her and to most other people uh, would sound weird. Um, Violence isn't supposed to relax us. It's supposed to scare us. We're supposed to run away from violence. But I grew up in violence. I grew up being abused. Got beat on by every man in my life for the most part. So I'm used to violence and I have a rage in me. And I turn that rage outwards toward other people throughout my life. And I medicated that rage with alcohol and drugs and self-destructive behavior, hurting other people. Now I've learned to get a handle on it through jiu-jitsu and Muay Thai, through MMA. But it's still violence. It's still a distraction from what's bubbling constantly under the surface, which is this rage that has no place because the people that did these things to me, most of them are dead. All of them I've forgiven. I've turned my back to all of them. I keep moving forward. So they're so far in the rearview mirror, they're not even a speck on the horizon. They're just ghosts. So they're gone. 
My emotional connection to them is gone. My childish view of them is gone. But the rage remains. And so to distract myself from it, when I can't process it, write about it, sing about it, preach about it, teach about it, or just talk about it, I choose violence because it gives me peace, because it's familiar, it's normalized, it's habituated for me. Discomfort is my comfort zone now. That's my shock treatment. I don't look at pictures of criminals or mangled bodies or wrecked airplanes or prize fights and burning buildings and say to myself, oh, that's terrible. Instead, it gives me calm. <laughs> it relaxes me. It's familiar. But that's all of us in a certain sense. We've all been conditioned. We've all been indoctrinated since we were old enough to sit up and watch the TV or hold an iPad or a smartphone. It's been normalized. Violence has been normalized for us. We barely even flinch anymore, which is ironic because so many movies today now, there's no blood in the violence, like the Marvel movies and the DC movies, there's no blood. And then in other movies, the blood squibs, the blood packs, the visceral explosion of blood out of people's bodies has been replaced with CGI. So it doesn't, it's not visceral, it's not physical, it's not concrete. It's a flash across the screen, but you can tell it's not real blood. We've become desensitized through distraction. And then that way, we never have to confront that part of our nature, that we are innately violent. And that that violence is a consequence of our fear and our anxiety our rage toward others that doesn't have any place. They can't find any home to rest. So we distract ourselves with violent video games, violent TV and movies. We engage in violence. It's all a distraction. The medications, distraction. The alcohol that you need to drink in order to get through, no, distraction. The meaningless sex, distraction. The relationship that you know is going nowhere, distraction. It's a flight from reality. It's a running away from the truth. And without a myth, mythos, sorry, without a mythos, without a belief structure, a belief system, you're just floating in the universe, completely untethered, no foundation under your feet, no ceiling over your head, no walls around you. You are adrift in the universe without meaning, without value, without any higher calling. So of course you're neurotic, of course you're mentally ill, of course you're going to struggle and you're going to self-medicate. Of course you live in constant fear and anxiety. Because what else is there for you? So Watts writes, it is understandable then that we should sometimes ask whether life has not gone too far in one direction, whether the game is worth the candle, and whether it might not be better to turn the course of evolution in the only other possible direction, backwards to the relative peace of the animal, the vegetable, the mineral. Of course, he's only considering it, but it's more of a rhetorical statement. He doesn't think we should, and he knows we can't. But in the present tense, it often seems as if we are reverting, we're devolving, as I sometimes say, that it's unfair to compare us to children because children are more mature than we are, and they see the world with clearer eyes than we do. I think it's also unfair to compare us to animals because even animals do what they were created to do. We're the only creature that acts contrary to the way we were designed to act. We want the entire world 
and all of our relationships to conform to our perspective, to how we want to engage and interact with the world and with reality, with myth, with belief. And anyone who contradicts us must be canceled, banned, driven out of our life. Because we cannot stand to be contradicted. Because we have no beliefs, we only have opinions. We have no mythos, we only have childish fairy tales that we tell ourselves. As Watts pointed out, what we do is we kind of hunker down inside the lie and we kid ourselves to protect ourselves from confronting the bigger truths, the bigger questions that confront us. Where are we coming from? Who are we and where are we going? And ultimately, why? We got to let go of all that, Watts argues. We got to let go of all, we got to let go of all of it. And we have to re-embrace tradition. We have to re-embrace myth and belief. Not uncritically, but critically, reasonably, logically. We need to study and learn and gain knowledge. We need to take words seriously because they define reality. We need to act with purpose and be mindful of what we're saying and why we're saying it. What is our intent? What is our motive? What is the purpose of these walls, these boundaries? Why do we need freedom at all? Life is always changing, right? It's always in flux. There's the one thing in life you we can always count on is it's going to change. And so when it comes to love then, love is always changing because we are always changing. So why do we treat those we love as if they're static, as if they're always going to be around, as if we're entitled to them? Why do we drag our feet when we're in a loveless relationship? Why don't we listen to our gut and get out so that we're not 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 and we're saying to ourselves, why am I here? Why did I squander the best parts of my life with him or her? Why didn't I listen to my gut? Why don't I do something to change my circumstances? If you're alive today, you can change your life. That's a fact. But it's up to you. It's up to you to pray. It's up to you to believe. It's up to you to lean into the mythos. It's up to you to, tr to trust and put on trial those traditions that have been handed down to us by our fathers and our spiritual fathers. Test them. Try them out. Push against them. Make sure they're sturdy and strong. You don't want to get on top of something that's going to collapse underneath you. So don't do it uncritically. Right? It's like the Apostle Paul says, when I was a child, I thought like a child. But I'm not a child anymore. I'm an adult. So I can't think like a child. But Grimm's fairy tales still have a lot to teach us about virtue and vice, about morality, about life in general. And just because I may not believe in fairies or goblins or trolls doesn't mean those stories can't teach us something. Ah, electrolytes. You do me good. So one last thing then from Watts. He writes, the only way to make sense out of change is to plunge into it, to move with it, and to join the dance. Re-embrace the myth. Re-embrace belief. Accept that they have potency in and of themselves. They're powerful. Stop being indifferent to reality, to objective reality. Stop worrying about being strong and building that armor up thick and adding extra plates 
while you wither and atrophy inside. There's a time to fight. That's when you put on the armor, right? When you need the sword, make sure that your sword is sharp. Make sure that you're training with the sword so that you're ready to fight. But never forget what you're fighting for. And for me, who? If you don't have a who that you're fighting for, why are you fighting? If you don't have a why, why are you fighting? If you don't have a what, what are you fighting? Know your who, know your why, know your what. Know when to fight and when not to fight. And I forgot that the last three years. I forgot that it's okay to go outside of myself, to open myself up, to love, to be hurt and heartbroken. Because that's a part of love too. Tough love is a part of compassion and kindness as well. Telling people the truth because you love them. Loving someone so much that you're willing to let them hate you because you can't sit by and watch them drink themselves to death. Sitting with a stranger on a plane and holding her hand because she just needs someone to love her and hold her through her fears and anxieties until we land and I can say, see, everything's okay now. We're all good. Thanks for the conversation. But if we're not willing to open ourselves up, if we're so afraid of being hurt and heartbroken, if we're so afraid of someone contradicting us or judging us that we just shut down and shut others out, we can't be surprised at ourselves when we find ourselves standing alone. Just because we want to be loved doesn't mean that we're lovable. Maybe we're just likable and maybe not even that. But there's a rhythm and a flow to music, for example. Like I said, my poetry is more like spoken word because I write it and then I, I say it out loud and it has to have a certain rhythm and flow to it for me to say, okay, this one's done. But I get that because I'm a huge fan of, like I said, the Harlem jazz poets like Langston Hughes. I'm a huge fan of rap and even good spoken word. I like it. It appeals to me. The body as an instrument, the mind engaged with the body to express words that express feelings and experiences and thoughts that they're not logical, they're not rational necessarily, they're not even based in reality, they're euphemistic, they're aphoristic, they're metaphors, they're similes. They're painting a picture with words. And that to me, as someone who went to art school, is the attraction of poetry. I'm going to paint a picture with words. Now, whether I'm successful or not in that is going to differ. That's subjective from person to person. But for me, just the engagement with the discipline of writing and speaking, using my body and my mind to produce something orally that has a rhythm and a flow to it. To me, that's a reflection of life. It's a time for me to stop and ask, okay, what's going on? Going on inside of me, but what's going on outside of me as well? And how are these two things, these two symbiotic, these two things that have the symbiotic relationship, the internal and the external, how are they flowing with each other? Are they in rhythm with each other? Are they out of step? Are they out of time? What's going on? But I can't do any of that without boundaries, without a foundation, without a roof. And for me, that's my belief, my faith, and the mythos that I embrace, that I accept, that communicates to me these incomprehensible truths, some of which are beyond our understanding and all we can do is express them in aphorisms and myths. That's the best we can do. That's as close as we can come to explaining these kinds of reality. 
these parts of reality, sorry. If that rhythm is destroyed, if that flow is destroyed, well, then all of life ends up being destroyed. We need art. We need to be able to express ourselves to ourselves and to each other. We need to be curious and creative. We need to let that out. But in letting that out, we have to love what we're doing. We have to be passionate about what we're doing so that we can also receive criticism and scrutiny, both bad and good. The way in which I express my art, whether it be jujitsu, Muay Thai, poetry, painting, preaching and teaching, writing, I have to be free within the boundaries, within the rules of my publisher, my gym, my coaches, my congregation, my home, myself. I have to be free within that to play and to experiment and to fail. But without boundaries, there's, there's no stop. You just drift. There's no judgment, there's no crit criticism, there's no improvement, there's no failure, there's no discomfort, there's no comfort, there's no love, there's nothing. You're just floating, suspended between somewhere that you're coming from and somewhere that you're going. And you don't know how far you are from one edge or how far you are from the other edge. And so the only way to make sense out of the changes that happen to us and around us is to plunge into change and to move with it and to join the dance, Watts writes. So I guess that's what I'm saying today, is that what traveling to Mexico and being with my spiritual family and my spiritual homeland did, it plunged me into a place where I've always felt safe and comfortable, a place where I've always received consolation, revelation, truth, certainty. I've been humbled. I've been welcomed back into the dance. And so this time in particular, I'm not going to take that for granted like I have in the past because I lost that for three years and I didn't even notice it. That's how easy it is for us to lie to ourselves, to deceive ourselves, to forget. And so my recommendation, my advice to you, my suggestion, go find something that you're passionate about that allows you to express your art, whether it's dance, poetry, music, writing, speaking, whatever it is, find your art, find your passion, and then open yourselves up to it. Open yourselves up to failure and discomfort. Open yourself up to the possibility of improvement and growth that you'll get better at expressing yourself. You'll get better at opening yourself up to your own curiosity and creativity and that of others. And that the scrutiny and the judgment that comes when you put that out there for other people to, to sample and engage with, that's just part of the process. It's part of expressing your art because not everybody's going to like it. Not everybody's going to hate it, right? But that's what it means to be alive, to plunge into change, to move with change, to join the dance. And art is a constant evolution of thoughts and feelings and experiences. It's life expressed poetically, beautifully, even in the midst of violence. So don't do what I did. Don't build it, build that armor so thick, and so strong that you atrophy and wither inside and forget how to love, forget how to be compassionate and charitable and selfless and self-sacrificing. What are you fighting for? 
Who are you fighting for? Why are you fighting? When do you need to fight and when do you need to love? And I, you know, you can talk about Leonidas in 300, talk about Roland, you can talk about any epic poem, any epic myth. They all had a reason for why they were there fighting. Usually it was for love. Love of a woman, love of their fellow man, love of their nation or their tribe, love of their God. So what do you love? What do you love? What do you suffer for? What are you passionate about? What is your art? That's all I got for today. I hope that helped. I hope that was something that got you thinking, right? Otherwise, that's all I got for now. Maybe down the road somewhere, I might start reading my poetry as a high ground side episode, kind of bonus thing. Who knows? I'm still working my way through the posting it on Instagram and Facebook and letting people see it phase of this. Um, but once I get a few more kinks worked out, maybe I'll start reading that stuff on the high ground stuff. But otherwise, anyways, I'm ruminating now. Thank you as always for everything you do to support this show and support me. Um, I've got some announcements coming up about where the money that you, you donate to this podcast to support it is going now. Um, and that is also a, a point of rejuvenation for me, new sense of purpose and why I do what I do, why I'm doing this. So thank you. I just want you to know that those of you who do support the podcast financially, um, that money is actually going towards a good cause and a charitable cause because I want to give more back to people. I want to give back more to my family, to my community, to the people that I say I love. And I want to stop saying it and I want to start doing it more. So I'll talk about that in the future as well. But with that being said, I'll talk to you again real soon, Space Monkeys. Peace.